Did you listen carefully to the reading of Psalm 95 this morning? It's relevant to what we're going to be looking at in our study in the Gospel of Matthew. I'd like to read just a few of those verses once again that Richard read for us out of Psalm 95 to kind of set the stage, if you would, for what will be from the perspective of the world a rather harsh sounding message. But God, who is a God of love, also is a God of justice. And he displays himself in both the Old Testament and in the New as a God of love, but also a God of judgment. His wrath will indeed be poured out as it had been in the past. It will also be again. Because sin continues to reign in this world. And this world is a very dark place because of sin. Evil is everywhere. And it is manifesting itself in many different ways. Over these last several decades, we have seen such an increase of the ways of men coming against the ways of God in such a terrible manifestation of evil. I needn't go into details about all of those things that we all are aware of, but know this, God is in control. And nothing that Satan can do will ever harm you if you are His, will ever cause you to suffer more than the Lord will allow you to suffer. And in the temptations that you face, God always provides a way for escape from those temptations. Whatever trials you may be having to deal with, God will see you through them. As you spoke through the prophet Isaiah, though the floodwaters come upon you, they will not overwhelm you. The fires may be surrounding you, but they will not burn you. You are protected by an almighty, holy, loving God. And yes, He does chasten those He loves. That's absolutely a certainty. Whenever we fall into sin, there is that which God must do to bring us back to Him. And sometimes it's painful. But know this again. His love is real and is always available to anyone who would just embrace Him. As Matthew said, we love Him because He first loved us. So as we read these passages this morning, remember, yes, God is love. But God must judge. And so the passages in Psalm 95 that I want to read to you are talking about that which God must do because He is God. In verse 8 of Psalm 95, He says, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested Me. They tried Me Though they saw my work for 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. 
so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The last time we were in Matthew's Gospel, we completed our study in chapter 22, where Jesus had been having to answer questions that were brought before him by the Pharisees, by the scribes, by the Sadducees, by the Herodians. They all failed in their attempt to thwart him, to cause him to stumble, to cause him to be looked upon by the people as a man who has blasphemed against their God. They wanted him to not be seen by the multitudes as their Savior. But he is and was and will always be. And the multitudes were still convinced that he was indeed there for that one purpose of sitting on the throne of David at that time to overthrow the Roman government and reestablish the kingdom that was promised in the Word of God. That was their hope. That was their dream. That expectation was here before them. They knew him to be more than just a man. Even the Pharisees and scribes knew this. But they, like the Israelites of old spoken of in Psalm 95, rejected him. They rebelled against him. And so in this chapter 23, where we will be this morning, Jesus now gives his response to their efforts to bring condemnation against him. They ended their questions in chapter 22. And Jesus had responded with a couple of statements. And one of those was a question, really. He reminded them of Psalm 110, which said, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Jesus says to those Pharisees and scribes and all the other leaders, If he is... David's son, and they had just admitted that, then how is it that David also calls him Lord? There was a question they could not answer. The only way, the only way that it could possibly be answered is that he is both Lord and Son, and it's based upon the Old Testament Scriptures that says he is the root of Jesse and the offspring of Jesse. He is both of those which in the natural realm cannot be understood. It was so convincing of an an assessment of who he really is. All the multitudes loved it. But the Pharisees and scribes and the Sadducees and the Herodians, they were unable to answer him a word, it tells us at the end of verse of uh, chapter 22. And from that day on, they didn't dare question him anymore. The inspection had been done. The lamb was found to be without blemish, without spot, perfect sacrifice. And that was as it needed to be. So now in verse 1 of chapter 23, Jesus turns to the multitude and his disciples and he begins to tell them, in, I believe, the hearing of all those who had been trying to stump him, these words. It says in Verse 1, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. 
But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Now Jesus is saying in the synagogue, the rabbis, the teachers would sit in the assembly and they would teach from Moses' laws. And Jesus is saying, they teach from the Word of God, listen to what they say and be obedient to what the Word of God tells you as they are relating those things to you. But they don't do those things that they say you should do. They themselves take themselves out of that responsibility of obedience to the commands of Moses because of their high station in Israel. As leaders, they weren't only greedy, they were prideful, they were selfish. And they had some things they needed to learn about God and about themselves. And so now in these last several verses of chapter 23, it's a lengthy chapter, but we'll breeze through it rather quickly because, well, if we spent all our time in chapter 23 alone, we would probably all leave here very discouraged. But I don't want you to be discouraged. I want you to understand that the promises in Psalm 95 in the Old Testament are also promises for all of us in this present hour. Because we are the sheep of His pasture if we have received Him as our Lord and Savior. We are His people and He loves us and He wants us to know that His love is real and that is what we should be taking home from this time of our study today. But listen to what He says to those who are rebellious. Listen to what He says to those who are prideful and arrogant and selfish. Listen to what He says to those who think themselves to be God's children. Special, set apart. Oh, they're set apart. Yes. But they wrongfully think that they're set apart for service to God. They're set apart to get all that they can get from the people. And Jesus calls them out in this passage. He continues talking about the fact that they don't do what they tell you you need to do. And he explains what he means by that. In verse 4 it says, For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Remember Jesus, when he spoke about burdens of himself, he said, Come, all ye that are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Psalm 95, God wants to provide a rest. And if they are continuing in their rebellion, they will not enter into that rest. But, not only will they not enter into the rest, they are doing all they can to keep others from entering in. And that's what he's going to continue to say here in this passage. He says in verse 5, But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ. And you are all brethren. Brethren. 
Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is making it very clear that there are distinctions to be made between those who love God and those who love themselves. They thought themselves to be very special. It was an honor for them to sit in the highest places in the synagogue and in the feasts that they would go to the head table and enjoy the acclimates of all the people. Oh, look at Rabbi Shimai. He's here among us. Oh, I'm so happy to see that this wonderful man of God is here in this place. Let that not ever be said of any one of us. For we all are brothers and sisters in the Lord. We don't have a hierarchy We have ministries. All of us have ministries. My ministry happens to be that of pastor-teacher. I am here standing before you to share the Word of God, to deliver God's Word to you, and I pray that every time I speak from God's Word that it not return unto Him void, as the Word of God declares. But I'm not special. I'm not anything more than any one of you. We are all on the same playing field, if you will. We're all one in Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul over and over again says in his letters. There is no one who is more important than anyone else in the body of Christ. Male or female, black or white, rich or poor, every one of us are of equal value to God. And that's why Jesus said, don't call anybody on earth your father. You know, that statement has led people to think, well, I shouldn't call my daddy father. You know, that's a filial relationship. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, don't you dare think of somebody else in a more elevated position and cause that one to receive your praise for that elevated position. If you were to call me father, I would think that you must be from a Catholic background. I prefer Norm, because I'm just one of you. I'm okay with Pastor Norm, if that's your choice. That's good. I don't have a problem with that. Don't call me Father. And please don't call me Reverend Labonde. You know, the Word of God does say that God is, His name is Reverend. It belongs to Him, not to me. You know, there are many who take those positions and take those levels of authority, the bishop or the presbyter or the elder. I don't go around saying, Elder Richard wants to share something with you the next time I'm gone. I don't go around saying, Deacon Matt has something special to share. I just say, hey, listen to what Matt has to say. One of the reasons I don't wear a shirt and tie is because a tie is like a tourniquet to me. But another reason is I just want to be normal. Norm. My name is, and that's what I like to imply. 
normal norm. Don't elevate anyone. Think more highly of yourself than anybody else either. It works in that direction as well. Do not call anyone on earth your father. Don't call anyone teacher. There's one who is your teacher. That's Christ. And what Jesus didn't share in that statement is that the Holy Spirit is also your teacher who dwells in you. But there's no difference between the Holy Spirit and Jesus. It's Christ in you, it's the Holy Spirit in you, it's God in you. All three are stuffed in you somehow. I don't know how to explain it, but they are all three there in you, dwelling in you, tabernacling in you as the temple of the living God. You are chosen by Him, and you are His holy place. Think about that. All of us. We have a purpose. We have a plan that's God's plan to serve Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let it be so for every one of us in this room that we would be convinced that He is our Father and Jesus is our Teacher. The Holy Spirit continues to comfort and guide and strengthen and teach in all of us who believe. And we learn from one another. We learn from Him. We learn from reading His Word. So it is a blessing for us to read His Word together and to study His Word and to know that His Word is so wonderful and it is so precious to me. And so when I read these words that Jesus will say next, I read them knowing that He is very serious about what He expects of those who love Him. The next several verses contain eight woes. Matthew 5 contained eight blessings. The Beatitudes, blessed are those who are poor, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirst. The the several blessings found in the Beatitudes, compare them to these eight woes that are presented here. They are very opposite one another. The first one in verse 13 says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! The Greek word, Hippocrates. It was from the Greek plays. The players in the Greek plays would have two masks. One happy face and one sad face. And those masks were the Hippocrates. They would wear one or the other depending on the character that they were trying to present and the emotion that they wanted to share in their uh, work as play or players in the uh, particular performance that they were doing. And we see those sad face, happy face masks connected in a very, very familiar way in many different uh, forms of entertainment. But this is not entertainment. Jesus calls them hypocrites because they're two-faced. And it's not a good thing. 
Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. They want to enter in, but the scribes and the Pharisees were preventing them from doing so. Remember, Jesus had already said, let your righteousness be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Oh man, that's impossible, isn't it? I mean, look around, those scribes and those Pharisees, oh, they are such religious, such holy men. How can our righteousness exceed theirs? But Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds them, you will not enter in. That implies that those who were scribes and Pharisees who were being among those that he is condemning in this passage would not enter in. And he's saying here that they are attempting to prevent others from entering in. It's a scary thought. Verse 14 is another woe. And if you're reading from the NIV or the ESV translations, this verse, verse 14 is omitted. Most of the other translations have it. Some have it in a margin. Some have it in the context in which it was written here. The only reason that it's not in the NIV or the ESV is because they use a certain specific group of manuscripts that excluded it, and they say those are the best manuscripts. Whether or not you agree with the writers, the translators of those particular translations, this verse 14 of Matthew is found specifically in all the translations in Luke and Mark. So it's not a questionable saying of Jesus. It is what Jesus had said. And I believe that it's one of the eight woes that he is presenting here. So I'll read it as it is written in the New American Standard and also in this version, the New King James, where it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Devour widows' houses They took advantage of widows. Orphans and widows are among those whom God's blessing has been poured out. And he speaks often in the Old and the New Testament about the need for believers in God to take care of widows and orphans. These Pharisees and scribes chose instead to take advantage of the widows and take all of their resources and and convincing them that they needed to put their resources into the temple and they would make sure that they would receive compensation enough to keep themselves alive. Their purpose wasn't to help the widow. It was to make themselves rich. You devour widows' houses, he says. He knows what they were doing. And so should you be aware of it. There are men in the church unfortunately, who do the same sorts of things. They take and they don't give. And they take more. And they feign religiosity. But they're among the worst of evil men in the world. They make long prayers. Publicly, 
They stand on the street corners praying and making themselves heard among the masses. Oh, look at Rabbi Himyal. Oh, he is so, so religious, praying all day long on the street corners. Listen to what he has to say. Well, he says some good things perhaps, but he's not doing it for the right reason. He's doing it to show. Jesus brings condemnation against those who make an effort to attract others to their own holiness, righteousness. How sad. They will receive condemnation for that, which they do. The third woe. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. In other words, you are doing evil things. You have people that you gather to yourself, and you make them even twice as bad as what you are, and you send them out into the fields, into the byways and the highways, and you draw others into the same trap. Jesus speaks another way of the blind leaders of the blind, and they both fall into the ditch. You make them as much a son of hell as yourselves. The Pharisees and scribes he's talking about, they're the ones who thought they were going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, you're going to a different kingdom. Woe to you, verse 16, blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it, and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it, and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits on it. In this section, Jesus is talking about making some kind of a vow, a commitment to God. And what they were doing is they were saying, it's not so important that you make your vow to the temple. It is better if you make your vow to the gold in the temple. That is what is binding. That was their argument. Jesus is saying just the opposite. He said, yeah, you can make and should make vows unto God. It is a practice of the Jews even today. And we make vows from time to time. Those are commitments that we make. We make vows to our husbands or our wives. The one in particular that is the most important vow is the vow that we made when we came together as husband and wife. Those of you who are married, do you remember that vow? It went something like, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, until death do we part. That was a vow not only to your spouse, but that was a vow to God, if indeed you were married in a place where God was allowed. 
These religious leaders were misrepresenting the Lord in every detail of what they had done and what they did and how they represented their God. How could it be? Well, simply put, it was all about them. That's why they wanted to get rid of Jesus, by the way. And if you will, Jesus is here pointing out to the multitudes all of the failures of the scribes and Pharisees to please God. And having failed to please God, they are indeed fulfilling that which He spoke in Psalm 95, that they shall not enter His rest. There's more. Verse 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. In other words, if you are convinced that you should tithe, then do that. That's good. If you are convinced that you should make an offering unto the Lord, that's fine. Do it. That's good. But the weightier things of the law are much more important. Well, what's he mean by the weightier things of the law? He's saying here that justice and mercy and faith are weightier than all of the things you can do as you gather together, even praying or, or offering your resources or helping others. That's all good. But if you forsake the rest, if you do it for the wrong reason, without mercy, without justice, without faith, it is of no value. I'm reminded in Micah's short prophetic letter in the Old Testament, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Those three things mentioned by Micah are here in Jesus' words reiterated once again. Love justice, love mercy, and be faithful to walk with your God. And when we do those things, those things which are still required of all who serve Him, then you will find great blessing and honor and peace and joy and satisfaction in knowing that you are indeed a child of God. These you ought to have done, Jesus says, but without leaving the others undone. So do it all, but mostly do what is needful, what is required, and the rest will follow. Then he says again, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Well, that's quite a comparison, isn't it? A little gnat, an insect you can barely see. And they did such things. They were concerned about somehow swallowing an insect that enters into their mouth when they're walking down the street and they would (coughs) try to choke it away, try to spit it out because they didn't want to defile themselves by that gnat that may have landed on a Gentile. And Jesus says, you do that, but you... A camel. Think about that. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine swallowing a camel. I don't think it's anything that's even nearly possible, but that's what Jesus uses for this comparison. How ridiculous it is for one, 
as compared to how ridiculous it is as it is for another. I love the way Jesus makes these comparisons because they are so amazing in their scope. Woe to you, verse 25, another woe, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, and that the outside of them may be clean also. So they were very meticulous in the dietary laws that they kept, in the hygienic laws that they kept. And Jesus said, Look, you cleanse the outside, but look on the inside, full of extortion, self-indulgence. He's talking about the outside of the people themselves. Externally, they looked holy, but what was inside? Corruption, evil thoughts, full of extortion and self-indulgence. It's quite a condemnation. Verse 27 says also, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Few are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Again, the picture is very clear. On the outside, whitewashed tombs. I don't know if you've ever noticed, we have a cemetery across the street from this church building. And once in a while... The town commits to whitewashing the tombstones. Over time, they get grayed and they start appearing kind of out of sorts, dull. But when they whitewash those tombstones, man, they just are so brilliant and shiny. Well, what was the purpose of all of that in Jesus' day? It was especially so that on the feast days, the three feasts in particular that were required of the Jews to come to Jerusalem, that they would take the time to whitewash tombs. And the reason they did that was primarily so that people would be able to see them. They wouldn't be out of sight or covered by debris. They would be obvious to the people. There's a tomb there. There's a tomb there. And they would avoid any contact with those tombs because the law spoke against them touching anything that would defile them. And if they touched anything like the tombstone or anything else that was a defilement, then they could not do anything for seven days. They weren't going to be able to attend all of the festivities if they were defiling themselves by touching any of those things. So the Pharisees and scribes made a big deal of whitewashing all the tombs to make sure that the people would pass by them safely. It was very generous of them to do so. But Jesus uses that as an example of who and what they were. They were whitewashed on the outside, but they were full of dead men's bones on the inside. I don't know if you're getting this yet, but it looks to me as though Jesus is pretty angry. I thought he was a God of love. Well, didn't you hear? He is. He's a God of justice as well. He is. Verse 27. Rather, verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, 
we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that one, or that rather on you, may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." Fill up the measure of your father's guilt, Jesus says. Notice that he calls them gentlemen, men of honor. Oops, I read the wrong verse or the wrong version. Scribes and Pharisees were identified by Jesus as serpents, vipers, brood of vipers. They were out to kill, and he knew that. They knew it. The multitude was hearing this for the first time. Can you imagine what they must have thought as Jesus was saying all these words against these religious leaders? Can you imagine what they must have been saying to one another? Did you hear what he said? Wow, look at their reaction to what he just said. Oh, my God, did you hear him say serpents, vipers? Nobody's ever spoken to the Pharisees and scribes in such a manner as this. How can he be saying such things? He's saying it for two reasons. One, because it's true. The other is because he's nailing the nail into his hands as he speaks these words. He's nailing the nails into his feet as he's speaking these words. There is no question in my mind, and I hope there is none in yours, that Jesus was not making a mistake in having shared these words with such force at this particular juncture in his walk on the earth. His time had come. And he's sealing his own fate. He did it deliberately. For you, for me. Take note of the fact that he says in verse 34, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Jesus, I send. Not God your Father sends. I send. Who's in charge? God is in charge. Who's he saying he is in this passage? God. I send. Not only does he say it there... But in the remainder of this chapter, take a look at what he says about himself. In verse 34 it says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. There's an Old Testament reference to God being like a Mother hen, gathering her chicks under her wings. David writes 
that his desire is to have the Lord God shout to him in the shadow of his wings. That's a good prayer to pray, by the way. I love to ask the Lord for several things as I come before him. I ask him to walk before me, to light my path. I ask him to walk beside me, in fellowship with me. I ask him to walk behind me as my rear guard. I ask Him to keep me upon that solid rock that He's placed me upon, having taken me out of the miry clay. He's put me on that solid rock, and I stand on that rock, which is Christ. I have the Spirit of God who dwells in me, and I ask Him to please, Lord, remain in me and show me that You are present in my life, in all that I do and say, in every aspect of my being. And then I ask, O Lord, cover me in the shadow of Your wings. It's the protection of God who completely surrounds us above and below us, behind us and in front of us. That's what we need to pray daily in these last hours. They would not. They weren't willing to let Him cover them, to protect them. And in verse 38... He shares with them the results of their arrogance. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's telling them, I know that your plan is to kill me, and so it will be. You will take me to a cross, outside the city, you will not see me in this place ever again until I come again. He is predicting His return, knowing that He is about to die. He's saying it very clearly. You will see me no more till you say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember just a few days before this, the people were praising the Lord for the entering into the city of Jerusalem, their presumed Messiah. And they quoted Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save now, O Lord. Save now. Hosanna in the highest. He's saying that will be said again by the same people that have rejected him. How can that be? Well, it can only happen if the rest of His Word is indeed fulfilled. He came, and we're celebrating His Advent as a little child in a manger, grew up to be a man who was a great teacher, a healer, a prophet, they thought, a man that they believed was the one who was coming to change everything. That's not where He came except for the fact that he did change everything, but not in the way that they understood. What he changed was the fate of all mankind, the salvation that was available to all who would simply believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross that he was about to go to. He knew it all. He knew when it was going to be taking place. He knew how it had to happen. But he knew that there was, after that, 
an event that they were not expecting that was written about in the Word of God, yet they never saw it. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is God's affirmation that everything that He did while He was on this earth and having gone to the cross for the benefit of all, that affirmation of the Father in heaven made this possible for you and me. The resurrection of Christ implies a greater resurrection still. And it's coming. It's soon to be accomplished. And when it is, then would be these words fulfilled that Jesus spoke to these Pharisees and scribes. When I come again, he said, Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, spoke of those things, that he is indeed going to come. He's going to set his feet upon Mount Zion, and they will see him whom they have pierced. It speaks of Christ. Zechariah knew nothing of crucifixion. David knew nothing of crucifixion. Yet in Psalm 22, he gives the most perfect illustration of a man being crucified. In many, many other places where the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ were prophesied from the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New. The second coming has not yet happened, but it will. And when it does, all who have believed in Him will be together with Him and all the other saints who have gone on before us in glory, praising Him, worshiping Him, falling at our feet, giving Him the glory that is deserved only by Him. And we will say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise His holy name. So yes, this is a hard message. For those who are like the Pharisees and scribes, not willing, not able in their own intellect to grab hold of the simplest truth that has ever been stated. What's wrong with free? Does, does, does anything free ever happen to you? You ever see a sign, free lemonade? Do you stop and get a cup? You ever see a sign, free anything? On the side of the road, somebody wants to get rid of their couch. They put the couch there and free for the taking. People come along and say, oh, that's a good deal. Grab it. And they take it home. Free. It really was free. They didn't have to pay anything. I like free. But when you say free salvation, they turn and run. Ah, that's not for me. That's, that's just mythology. That's just somebody's long, long ago forgotten statements about a man who died on the cross and they think he was raised from the dead and they think that just because their book, the Bible, says some things about that, they're believing that lie and I don't buy it, I'm not going to worry about it. Or they might say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I, I know that Jesus was a good man, a good prophet. I know that he was a son of God. I go to church. So, the devils believe and they tremble. Do you understand 
what it really needs to be in your heart in order for you to be saved, in order for you to be born again, in order for you to be complete in Him, raised up as a new creation in Him, as an overcomer, as more than a conqueror, as a very child of God, receiving the very blessings that God wants to pour out on all mankind. Have you received that wonderful gift of salvation by saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I recognize that I am a sinner. And I know that there is nothing I can do to change that except one thing. And that one thing is simply receive a gift that has been offered by God through His own Son, Jesus Christ. To accept that offering of salvation, that free gift, doesn't take anything more than just simple heartfelt repentance for your sins and acknowledgement that He has given free gift of life. Don't you want it? I know I do. That's why I said yes to Jesus so long ago and I stand firm on the fact that He has indeed given me eternal life. And I will never let go of the promises of God. They are yes and amen to me. I take His word seriously when He says He is returning. I believe He's returning. What benefit is there for us to gather here if the resurrection were not so? We'd be among men most miserable if there is no resurrection. In the next several weeks, we'll be looking at, with the exception of perhaps the Sunday before Christmas, the things that Jesus has to say about His second coming. I don't know how many days it'll take us to get through that study, but we're going to continue in Matthew's Gospel to that end because it's so, so very important. It's applicable because it's His Word to you and to me today. So, all of these woes were written against those who rejected, those who rebelled, those who continued in their sin, but to those who have found faith to believe. Go back to Matthew 5 and read the blessings that are yours. 